Well, the Hebrews, they built a temple of gold and stone and splendor. They worshiped God inside this temple. But the Hebrews also wrote the Psalms, for they were not content to worship God in a temple. The Psalms seek to transform all of life into a temple. Their goal is to discover God in every circumstance, in every emotion of the soul. I like what Philip Yancey writes about the Psalms. He says, they contain the anguished journals of people who want to believe in a loving, gracious, faithful God while the world keeps falling apart around them. You know, Robert Frost once wrote of poets. He said, a poet has a lover's quarrel with the world. That's a great way to understand the Psalms. It's like a lover's quarrel with the world. It's a book of poems that lay bare the struggle between faith and life. The Psalms are poetry, and the goal of most poems isn't logic per se. It's more empathy and catharsis and feeling. Author Kathleen Norris, she comments, the Psalms do not theologize. One reason for this is that the Psalms are poetry, and poetry's function is not to explain, but to offer images and stories that resonate with our lives. This is what we find in the Psalms that we'll study tonight. The authors find themselves in a wide array of situations, but wherever they go, whatever they do, they find God in the middle of their mess. That's what the Psalms are all about. Well, in Psalm 137, the anonymous psalmist, he sings the blues. He's in Babylon, but not because he wants to be. You see, a few years earlier, the summer of 586 B.C. to be exact, the Babylonians had sacked the city of Jerusalem, and they had taken the Jews to Babylon into exile as captives. It was in the ancient land of Babel, along the banks of the Euphrates River, that one of the Jews in lockup, one of these exiled Jews, he picked up his harp and he started to play it like B.B. King and like Muddy Waters. He started singing the blues. And that's what we have in Psalm 137. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. During their captivity in Babylon, the Jews developed the habit of gathering by the riverside. You know, throughout their history, wherever Jews were displaced from their homeland, they would always gravitate toward or gather together by the river. I like that old hymn, Shall We Gather at the River? In, in Acts 16, verse 13, the Jews in Philippi, where do you find them? They've gathered by the riverside. Well, here they're by the river of, of, of Babylon. And, and he says, Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Around 1,700 years earlier, God led Abraham and his family out of Babylon, out of the land of idols, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet once in that promised land, Abraham's descendants, they went back to the idols of Babylon. They fell into idolatry. And so what did God do? God sent them back to Babel, to the birthplace of idolatry. Sadly, sin reversed everything that God had done from the Jews. Now these Jews are sitting by the Euphrates. They're weeping over what was lost. In a sense, they're right back to where they started because of their wayward hearts. You see, for centuries, the Jews had tried to have it both ways. Well, they had benefited from the blessings of the land that God had given them. They had enjoyed the milk and the honey, but they had flirted with the pleasures of sin. It was as if the Jews had put honey on their forbidden fruit and tried to wash it down with a glass of milk. It doesn't mix. You can't have the milk and honey and the forbidden fruit at the same time. Jesus says it this way, no man can serve two masters. There comes a day when everyone decides, are you going to serve God or are you going to serve your idolatrous desires, your substitutes for God? I've heard it said, the human heart is an idol factory. And indeed it is. You see, man was made to worship. And once we reject God, we create all kinds of alternatives to try to satisfy that inclination. Sports teams or hobbies or careers or virtual worlds or drugs and alcohol. And yet to cure his people of idolatry, God sends them into the land of idolatry. Where they are allowed to taste the accompanying pain of the sins that they've committed. 
I like this quote. Life is full of splinters that we don't feel until we begin to slide backwards. Isn't that true? When the Hebrews backslid from God, they started to feel the splinters that you pick up from disobedience and from stubbornness. Now imagine a Jew. He's in Jerusalem. Every day he sees and he walks by this grand temple, this colossal temple. The place of worship, the worship of God was the center of his national life. The worship of God dominated the skyline as well as his daily routine. Everything revolved around the temple. But now he's in Babylon. And now the cityscape, it's full of ziggurats. These astrological towers, these occult uh, worship centers. He's surrounded by these idolatrous temples. Horoscopes and the occult and soothsaying everywhere. Demonic symbols on every corner. He feels defiled. This is a dark, dark place. The 70 years these Jews spent in Babylonian captivity caused them to miss the glory of God. The temple, the priests, the sacrifices, the feasts, the psalms. And so now, rather than sing hallelujah, he hangs up his harps. According to verse 2, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Their reason to sing, their inspiration to play had been snuffed out there in Babel. You know, sometimes you don't realize you're backsliding until you feel a few of those splinters. And the captivity woke up the Jews to the consequences of their sin. The Babylonian captivity was sort of a divine timeout <laughs> that the Father had, had issued to His children. God reminded the Jews how much they missed Him and His blessings. You know, it's been said we don't really love a thing until we realize it can be lost. It's interesting, the Jews who return from Babylon will never again be tempted with idolatry. They would sin in other ways, but not with idols. This Babylonian captivity was good medicine. It cured the Jews of their idolatry once and for all. Well, the psalmist continues in verse 3. He says, for there in Babylon, those who carried us away captive, they asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know, even today, the Hebrews are a musical people. They're renowned for their psalms and their singing and their dancing. Go to Israel with us. Go to Jerusalem and you'll see them dancing in the streets. And so their captors, they, they knew of this reputation, and so they wanted to be entertained. Sing us a song. Give us a dance. But how can you make merry when you have sinned in your heart and you have let your God down? A song from the lips is disingenuous when there's an ache in your heart. And so the Jews answer their captors in verse 4. They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I, forget, oh, Jeru if I forget you, O oh, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. I like what commentator William Heslop, summed, how he summed up Psalm 139. He said, wickedness is always followed by weeping. And indeed it is. God's presence was the psalmist's chief joy. And he would rather have his tongue cling to the roof of his mouth than to feign joy, to fake celebration. He'd rather gargle with super glue than live his life apart from God and fake the joy and celebration that should exist in his heart. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raz it, raz it, to its very foundation. You know, Jerusalem was sacked on my wife's birthday, by the way. I don't know why I said that. I don't know why that's important, but I always remember it. July the 18th, 586. Now, the 580, she wasn't born in 586 B.C. She was born on July 18th. But Jerusalem was sacked July 18, 586 B.C. And the invaders proved to be savages. you got to understand, the Babylonians, they burned the city to the ground. They raped the Jewish women. They threw their children from the windows. 
so that their heads would burst on the streets. And they laughed while doing it. And all the while, God's people were suffering these atrocities from the Babylonians, the Edomites, their neighbors to the south. They were cheering on the Babylonians. Oh, raz it, ravage it, tear it to the ground. And here the psalmist prays for God to judge these callous Edomites. He says, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. The psalmist is seeking retribution. Understand, this is a man who lives under the law. All he knows is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so he asks God to return the brutality of the Babylonians on their own heads. Now as Christians, we've been lifted to a higher standard. Because we've become privy to God's mercy, to God's grace. We were once enemies of God, yet he chose to forgive us and to show us love. Therefore he asks us, to show that same love and mercy on our enemies. The psalmist, though, he lived under these laws of retribution, the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. And here he asks God to bring about justice, to bring about fairness. He wants to see the same crimes done against the Babylonians that they had done to the Jewish people. Here's another thought before we judge these this psalmist and his cry for retribution. Not only does this psalmist know only justice, we shouldn't minimize what he endured, especially from our vantage point so far away and so long ago. Put yourself in Jewish shoes for a moment. Imagine yourself in that ravaged city, under that assault, in that siege. One author writes this, Those who find fault with the psalmist are those who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children's head dashed against the rocks. They might not be so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered in this fashion. I'm not sure any of us knows exactly how we would have reacted under these kinds of circumstances. I don't think we would know until we were put in that situation. Well, Psalm 138. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Notice here, David praises God for his loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness is the Old Testament term for grace. In the New Testament, John 1 verse 17, we're told the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. David lived under the law, but he seems to have had a new covenant mindset. He certainly enjoyed new covenant blessings. He trusted in love that he hadn't earned and didn't deserve. He trusted in God's grace. Here he thanks God, he praises him for his loving kindness and his truth, or his grace and his truth. I think David was a man ahead of his time. I guess you could say he had a renaissance faith. And pay attention to the incredible statement that David makes next in verse 2. He says, For you, God, have magnified your word above all your name. If you want to know why we put so much value upon God's word, it's because God exalts his word. He has exalted His Word even above His name. Now to the Hebrews, nothing was more significant than the name of God. Go back. The third commandment prohibited taking the name of God in vain. In Leviticus 24, you read about a man who was stoned to death for blaspheming God's name. Later in their history, the Jews so revered the name of the Lord that they became afraid to even pronounce His name. It came to a point where the Jews refused to even write God's full name. So they would only write the consonants. Today we've lost the Hebrew name for God. It's simply written Y-H-W-H. The Tetragrammaton is what it's called. 
the vowels for another of God's names, Lord or Adonai, are, are you know, transposed into those consonants, which creates the name Yahweh that we often associate with God. But the real name for God has been lost to history. Here's the point. Only one item was more revered, more highly sought after by the Jews than God's name. It was holy to them. It was only one thing higher, and that was His Word. This book you hold in your hand tonight. As David tells us in verse 2, God has magnified His Word even above His name. And if God has exalted His Word so supremely, let us never be guilty of neglecting it. Taking heed to the Scriptures should be our top priority. You know, several years ago I received a letter from a church member. It was one of those encouraging notes that a pastor, he keeps and he puts it where he can find it and he pulls it out on real difficult days and he reads it again over and over. And it said a lot of nice things, but here's one line from the letter. It said, thank you for teaching God's word and not a lot of other stuff. Thank you for writing that note. There's a quote in Haley's Bible Handbook. I agree with wholeheartedly. It reads, A church that does not enthrone the Bible in the lives of its people is false to its mission. If God magnifies His Word above His name, then how can we possibly esteem it too highly? Well, verse 3 continues, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Notice it doesn't matter your race or your gender or your economic status or your education, even your football affiliation. God will still listen to your prayer. The only exception, the only person God won't hear is the proud person. Which coming back around to the football affiliation might pose some problems for those Florida Gator fans because they've become real proud over these past years. But only God knows the heart. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Here's the reason God allows us to walk in the midst of trouble. It's because the Lord is perfecting us. You really need to understand this. He is not just protecting us. He is perfecting us. You see, a muscle gets stronger only when it's met with resistance. And the same is true with a faith. A faith that never encounters opposition or difficulty never develops. It never becomes stronger. And if you're a parent, you need to pay special attention to this verse. Remember, God's goal is not just protecting us, but perfecting us. As parents, we need to take a cue here from the model parent, God. For there are too many Christian parents today that are so afraid of this world and its temptations that their top priority for their children is their protection. You need to understand that is not God's top goal for your kids. God desires their perfection, not just their protection. You see, parents today, they want to keep their kids in their little Christian bubble, insulated from any trials or any tests or any temptations. They homeschool their kids. They play baseball in the church league. They can't even run in the neighborhood. Hey, as a matter of fact, we've met parents who are so overly protective, they're afraid to let their kid attend a youth function or a church retreat. Hey, such a parent may be protecting their child, but they are definitely not perfecting their child. Parents, you've got to let your children feel the stress of the storm. Not all the time. Not without monitoring their progress. Not without open lines of communication. But you've got to let them experience some outside stress or they'll never sink deeper roots. 
And it's good to let them experience that stress while you're still there, while they're in your home, where you can help them deal with those problems and sort through those issues in a godly and in a biblical way. We've got to understand that our goal as parents is not just to protect our kids. God's goal for them is to perfect them in their faith. Well, he closes this psalm. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. In other words, Lord, keep up the good work. (laughs) Psalm 139 is a favorite psalm. If the Billboard Top 40 had been around at the time, Psalm 139 would have stayed at number one for many, many weeks. Of all the psalms, Psalm 139 possesses some of the deepest devotion. It's probably the psalmist's most beautiful ballad. It speaks of God's omniscience, His all-knowing, His omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. His omnipotence, His all-powerfulness, His almightiness. One author pens, language utterly fails me in the exposition of this psalm. The psalm begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This Hebrew word that gets translated search, it means to pierce through. To pierce through, to see through. You know, you'll hear someone say, wow, I, I can see, that guy can see right through me. Or my wife, boy, she's perceptive. She can just see right through me. That's the sense here. He's saying to God, God, just see through me. Lay bare my motives. Understand my heart. You know, the Greek philosophers, they used to say, know thyself. To the Greeks, the key to enlightenment was introspection, was to turn inward, was to focus on yourself. In fact, this is the assumption of modern psychology as well. And yet, here's the problem. I'm destined for confusion if my goal is to know myself. Hey, I might as well face it. I'm a bundle of contradictions. Not all my motivations are pure, even on good days. Feelings and flirtations, they come and go. I'm a bundle of emotions and thoughts. You see, real wisdom is not trying to understand myself. It's knowing God. And it's knowing that God has me pegged, that God understands me. And it's asking Him to search me out, to see through me, to lay bare my motives, to come humbly before Him, and to let Him sort out my inner life. And if I ask Him to do that, He will. Oh Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That's a pretty comprehensive knowledge. God has made a study of you. He knows you inside and out. He understands your movements and your motives and your meditations and your manners. In short, God knows all there is to know about you. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I mean, have you ever had that word on the tip of your tongue, and yet you couldn't conjure it up when you needed it? God knew what it was. If you'd asked him, he'd have probably told you. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I mean, it's such a good feeling to know that someone is that in tune with me and empathizes so deeply with my struggles. That God really knows me. Isn't it a wonderful feeling to know that you're known? To know that there's someone who understands. There's someone who knows you inside and out and still loves you. That's encouraging. You can be sure that no one will ever know you nor love you as much as God does. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascended into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... Behold, you are there. He's Lord over heaven and Lord over hell. Sometimes we think that the devil and his demons are running hell. Not so. God is Lord over all things. Heaven and hell. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Apparently God gets around, doesn't he? 
I mean, ascend as high as heaven, descend as low as hell, and there you'll find God. The psalmist says that there is no escaping the presence of God. Just ask Jonah. Ask Jonah about God being there in the uttermost parts of the sea. He'll tell you. The reluctant prophet, he tried to run from God's calling, but he found God in the belly of a well somewhere out in the deep blue sea. God is in all places at all times. At the same time, he is omnipresent. Reminds me of the pastor who tried to help reform a little boy who had a reputation for thievery. First, he wanted to test this little boy's Bible knowledge. The pastor said, Johnny, where is God? Johnny sort of shrugged. So the pastor asked again, Johnny, where is God? Well, the boy stayed silent. The pastor, irritated that the boy wouldn't talk to him, shouted, Johnny, where is God? Johnny jumps up. He runs all the way home. He races into his room. He locks the door behind him. And, of course, his mother wants to know what in the world's wrong. She came and she said, Johnny, what's the problem? And that's when Johnny answered, the folks at that church have lost God and they think I stole him. God isn't lost and God isn't stolen. He is in this room tonight. God is everywhere you'll ever be. He'll be with you on the job tomorrow. As you discipline your kids, as you write the checks and pay the bills, God is with you at all times, in all places. God is everywhere at all times. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know, most crimes are committed at night under the veil of darkness. But the night can't hide you from God. In fact, nothing goes undetected by God. He sees all. A sin done under the cover of darkness and a brazen sin committed in broad daylight is one and the same to God. He sees them both. He knows it all. It reminds me of the elderly fellow who uh, was prescribed a hearing aid. And when he came in for his checkup, the doctor said, he said, boy, I bet your family's happy to know that you can hear again. The old man chuckled. He said, well, I haven't told them yet. I've just been listening and I've changed my will twice. I mean, nothing gets spoken behind God's back that he doesn't hear, that he doesn't know. Verse 13, for you have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. This Hebrew word covered means to weave or to embroider. David knew that even while in utero, the Lord had knitted him together and had fashioned him according to God's design. You know, modern obstetrics has learned much about the development of a child in his or her mother's womb. And we're awed by God's genius in human reproduction. At the moment the microscopic sperm and egg unite, all the ingredients are in place for a fully functioning, viable human. I mean, from conception, nothing else gets added. All that's needed now is time and nutrients. It takes a fertilized egg just 266 days to grow into a seven and a half pound bubbly baby. And understand how quickly an unborn baby begins to grow. At two weeks, there's a discernible heartbeat. At 43 days, the baby has detectable brain waves. At six and a half weeks, the unborn baby starts to move. At nine weeks, the, the baby has a unique set of fingerprints. Its sex can be determined. Its kidneys are fully formed and functioning. At just 12 weeks, all of the body's organs are in operation. The baby can cry. All the above occurs in the first trimester of a mom's pregnancy. David knew that he was fashioned by a divine plan. And this is why I'm convinced, both biblically and medically, that abortion as a means of birth control is nothing less than the murder of another human being. Verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. You know, we could spend a long time discussing the intricacies of the human body. 
what makes possible functions like sight and hearing and language. You know, we're ignorant of so much. And so much we take for granted. We need to acknowledge that we are all just fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The phrase is in secret and the lowest parts of the earth is another way of denoting the sacredness and the mystery of what happens in a mother's womb. He says, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Hey, hey, when did God consider David a living human being? At birth? At viability? Oh no, before that. God considers us human from the moment of conception. God maps out our lives before we're even born. Just because you don't see the baby through the skin... And through the amniotic fluid, just because, you see the little foot? Just because you don't see that baby under that skin and under that fluid, doesn't mean that you can kill it. Just because you can't see its limbs and its hands, doesn't mean that you can take a suction tube and vacuum them into a waste basket. We've gone insane. God sees what happens even in the lowest parts of the earth. God sees. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I could count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Oh, I love this verse. Whenever I go to the beach, I always sit down and always pick up a handful of sand and I just let it pour slowly through my fingertips. And I just let it pour slowly. And I even try to count the individual grains the best that I can. And then I recall verse 18. That God's thoughts toward me are more numerous than the innumerable grains of sand along the whole world's shoreline. You know what that means? That that means God really must love me. And he loves you that much too. Apparently, God loves us so much that he can't keep us out of his mind. He can't keep his thoughts off of us. The psalmist adds, when I awake, I am still with you. I like that. I've dozed off. I went to sleep. But that didn't mean God wasn't vigilant. That didn't mean God left me. That didn't mean he went to sleep. That didn't mean he forgot me. His mind was still on me. Even while I was daydreaming about Kathy Adams, God was still thinking about me. That's the way it works. A man once asked the great missionary Hudson Taylor if there was ever a moment when he was not conscious of abiding in Jesus. And I love how Taylor responded. He said, while sleeping last night, did I cease to abide in your home Because I was unconscious of the fact. We should never be conscious of not abiding in Christ. Man, I like this. It's not that faith always sees itself connected to Jesus. Faith never sees itself unconnected. Even while we're asleep, we're still with Jesus. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Now, David has defended the innocent. Now he... As, as is his custom, he attacks the wicked. He asks God to mete out justice on evil men. He says, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. You know, again, before you go judging David for uh, his fiery temper toward his enemies, you, know, you get run out of your home. You get chased through the wilderness for a couple of decades. And let's see what you think about your enemies. I mean, we're so quick to judge. He says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. Didn't know there was such a thing, did you? According to David, there is. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. David considers God's enemies his enemies. 
He hates those who hate God. It's an expression of David's love and loyalty toward God. Of course, God would tell us as Christians that when it comes to us expressing our love for Him, we should do it by loving our enemies, doing good to them. Our, our, we should fight our enemies, but we should always remember that Christians fight evil with good. And he goes on, search me, O God, and know my heart. He's back full circle. This is how he started the psalm. And know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I dare you to pray that prayer tonight. God, search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. He'll expose it. He'll deal with it. He, he loves you that much. He wants to purge those things from your life. And he asked God to search his motives. God, turn over a few rocks in my life. I need that. Notice this. David has a healthy suspicion of his own motives and his own sincerity. I mean, so do I. Even on my good days, I know there's some, there's some defilement in my life. There, there's some dirt along with the good. Hopefully, I, hopefully there's, there's a lot of good going on in my life, but, but I know there's some things that are not so good, even on my good days. You know, we need to have a healthy suspicion of our own, our own problems. Never forget your capacity for hypocrisy and duplicity. I mean, you catch that with your kids all the time. <laughs> You start to reprimand them for something you just did 15 minutes ago. You know how, how that is. We're, we're so capable of that. And here David asks God to purge him and to purify him. He knows that he needs to be fumigated from time to time. He just needs to be fumigated with truthfulness and with humility. All believers need regular course corrections. And God is faithful to provide them if we ask. And if we wait. Well, Psalm 140. Wow, just 11 more to go. Psalm 140 through 143 were all written by David in difficult circumstances. The backdrop for these psalms could have been when David was on the run from King Saul. Or it could have been the height of his son Absalom's rebellion. First one begins. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now a snake's tongue, I think we got a shot. There we go. A snake's tongue is a sensor. It sticks out its tongue to pick up sense and vibration. You could say a snake smells with its tongue. David's enemies, he says, are sniffing him out. They're going in for the kill. And when a poisonous ass bites its victim, the muscle in its upper jaw squeezes the venom from nearby glands through the snake's hollow fangs. His teeth act like hypodermic needles. That's why he says that the poison of asp is under their lips. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. David's enemies have sharpened their teeth to inject their poison. Verse 4, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. I said to the Lord, You are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. Oh God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O oh Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Verse 10. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. You know, Paul mentions the heaping of hot coals on the heads of his enemies in Romans 12, verse 20. There he writes, If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Notice this, we heap coals on our enemy 
and torment them by responding to their evil with good. Not by lowering ourselves to their level. He says, let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Psalm 141 begins. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Now I love David's simple and sincere approach to prayer. He just cries out to God. No flowery speech, no embellished language here. Just an anguished cry. A man named Jim used to have an interesting approach to prayer. He would pray, hello Jesus, this is Jim. A friend was with Jim when he died, and he reported Jim's last words. Jim said to his buddy, Jesus just came, and do you know what he said to me? He said, hello, Jim, this is Jesus. You know, our tendency is to make prayer far more complicated than it needs to be. David just cries out to the Lord. He says, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Now, sometimes our prayer doesn't even take words, it just... It's just like a burning incense that just floats up to God. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Sometimes words might not even rise, but we can lift our hands to God. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Now he prays a simple prayer, but it is an extremely important prayer. Here he prays a prayer that we all should pray. Watch what you say. Put a sentinel. Put an armed guard at the gate of your mouth. For once a word leaves your lips, you can never get it back. In Psalm 140, David worries about his enemy's lying tongue. In Psalm 141, he's concerned about his own tongue. Both slander and slips can be a problem. He says, do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Now there were men who were waiting on David to make a rash or a harsh comment that they could use against him. They wanted to hang him with his own words. Remember, this was the Pharisees' strategy with Jesus. They threw tricky questions at him in the temple in hopes of catching him in some slip-up, in some error, in some slip of the lip. And this was the tactic of evil men in 1000 B.C. and 30 A.D. How much more is this the strategy of evil men in an age of information and of constant recordings and permanent playbacks and, and YouTube in Facebook, in Internet. Hey, we should never leave our bedroom in the morning until we post a guard by our mouth or by our keyboard. For once we've written that email, once we've said those words, we can never get it back. Verse 5, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me, It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Now here's what made David such a great man. Such a man after God's own heart. He was not too proud to receive the rebuke of the righteous. He welcomed constructive criticism from faithful and from godly brothers. And and I think this is a mark of maturity. Are we willing to receive constructive criticism? You know, it's been said, the trouble with most of us is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. We all need to be open to correction. David can handle a rebuke from a righteous man, but the destructive criticism of wicked men, this is what angers him. He says, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave as when one plows and breaks up the earth. 
But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares that have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safety. I would imagine Jesus prayed that prayer when he went into the temple knowing that the Pharisees were going to bombard him with questions, tricky questions. You know, he felt like he was walking through a minefield and he just prayed, Lord, help me to avoid the snares of my enemies. Now, while he was a fugitive and on the run from Saul, David lived for a time in two different caves. He lived in the cave of Adullam, which was near his hometown of Bethlehem. And he also lived for a time in a cave near En Gedi, which was an oasis bordering on the Dead Sea. And Psalm 142 could have been written in either of those situations. It fits the circumstances of both situations. Verse 1, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare before Him my trouble. Now, I'll be honest. There are times when I get tired of hearing certain people complain. But that's not the Lord's attitude. Here He encourages us to pour out our complaints. To declare our troubles. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walked, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see. For there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. What a terrible feeling David experiences here. No one cares. You ever said that? Man, just, I don't think anybody cares about my situation. It's as if he's on his own here. But there is one place he can turn. He says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Even in the midst of his troubles, he puts his hope in the Lord. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. We've all sinned against God. None of us could survive God's judgment. If God is counting strokes, we're all over par, man. We need grace. He says, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. David just doesn't know what to do. He, he just feels overwhelmed. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. I mean, he's so overwhelmed here. He doesn't know what to do. And so he reverts back to default setting. David does what's habitual for him. He does what he's always done. He spends time with God. He meditates and muses and longs for God. And this is what he needed to do all along. You see, here David is the recipient and the beneficiary of good spiritual habits. Godly disciplines that he's worked into his life over years from his youth. You see, when he doesn't know what to do, he does what he's always done. He, he just turns instinctively to God for his help and for his comfort. Which begs the question, what is your default mode? Now if I ask you to just revert to default, that could get real dangerous for some of you guys. 
Because you haven't built godly habits in your life. You don't have this habitual pattern in your life of turning to God. When you're in trouble, you, you run the opposite direction. You try to numb it with things of the world. You try to drown it out with the poisons of sin. You know, this is, this is how you approach your troubles. David, though, had made a habit of turning to God in difficult times. And so when, when he was in trouble, when he doesn't really know what to do, he just punches default. And he goes right back to what he should be doing all along. And that's trusting God and loving God and thinking about God and meditating on God. It's never too late to build godly spiritual habits in your life. It's never too late to begin spiritual disciplines. Like a quiet time in the morning. Like memorization of scripture. Like regular Bible reading. Like faithful church attendance. Like daily prayers. And just like, like just the instinctive impulse whenever you're in trouble. You know, to go to the Lord. Whether it's at the job, whether it's in the car, whether it's with the wife, whether it's with the kids. It's just to stop. And pull back and say, Lord, help me. Those kinds of regular disciplines, working them in our lives is good because there will come a time when we're overwhelmed and we don't know what to do and we'll go back to that default setting. This is why we need these good spiritual habits. Verse 8, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Apparently he had a, a morning time with God. For in you do I trust Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. And I, and I love the psalmist's request. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. I like that. He's asking God to reveal his will. And I think this is important because it shows that David has far more confidence in God's ability to speak than in his ability to hear. He says, show it to me, God. Make it clear to me. I know you can reveal your will to me. You want me to know your will more than I do, so show me your will. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I shall take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. I love Psalm 143. David is praying, God, hear me, answer me, cause me, deliver me, teach me, lead me, revive me. In short, do your work in me. In the last verse, David prays for God to do his work in his enemies. A work of a different sort, I might add. Verse 12, in your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. And David, he, he's always faithful. He waxes eloquent about his love for God. And, and he opens his heart to God. And, and then right at the end of the psalm, he sticks it to his enemies. <laughs> well, that's what he does. Well, seven more psalms. <laughs> 